The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. with Birth Circle. Today I'm joined by Julia Jones. And Julia is a postnatal doula who leads a worldwide renaissance in the way we care of care for newborn mothers. And I'm so excited to explore this topic with you um, because postpartum is we, we focus so much on the birth and the the pregnancy and the birth and not as much I think on the postpartum as we could Anyway, Julie has created a new paradigm for the postpartum care by emerging traditional medicine and cultural culture with cutting edge research on hormone and neurology. And everybody knows I love the left brain, math, science. So I'm super excited to get nerdy with you with the, <laughs> the hormones. And Julie's also the author of both Nourishing Newborn Mothers and Ayurvedic how do you say that? Sorry. Yeah, that was right. <laughs> oh, God, I was close. Ayurvedic recipes to heal your mind, body, and soul after childbirth and newborn mothers when a baby is born, so is a mother. Love that title. So thank you so much for joining me, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Awesome. Okay. So first of all, I could listen to you all night because just keep going with the accent. That's great. <laughs> um, so tell me how you got your start in this birth world. Yeah, well, I started out before I was a mum myself. I was actually interested in, in Ayurvedic medicine, in traditional Indian medicine. And from there, I learned that they have this really particular care protocol after a baby's born. And that really fascinated me because I never really thought that was a thing before. Um, so that's what kind of opened me up into this world of postpartum care. And also, I, um, I realized that what I could um, see is that it wasn't just in India. So at first I thought this was a particular like Ayurvedic thing. And then I learned that it was in China. And then I learned that they also do this in all over Africa, Europe, indigenous Australian people. Um, and in fact, Dana Raphael, an anthropologist has studied 178 different cultures and found that they all have um, these kind of fairly universal postpartum care protocols. So I was like, really? what are we like doing? Yeah. I was like, all these cultures develop these similar protocols, even though they've been kind of isolated. Exactly. A long time before we could, you know, talk to each other on the internet, we were caring for mums um, in very similar ways. And that's when I realized no wonder there's this gap. Like in our kind of Western colonized industrial world, no one's talking about this, no one's doing this. No wonder breastfeeding is so hard. No wonder depression rates are so high. You know, it's no wonder women feel so depleted. Um, it's just obvious that this is how humans are meant to be cared for. Yeah. And so what are some of the things these cultures are, are doing that are similar? I'm so curious. Yeah. So it's... Um, 
it's often sort of related to um, a, a few broad categories. So one of those categories is, for example, staying warm. So in a lot of cultures, they'll say women are supposed to wear socks, wear extra layers of clothing, not, not get their hair wet, not go outside in the wind. Um, you know, so that's it, it kind of can have different details in different cultures, but the general kind of the theme idea of warmth. Is, yeah, yeah. It's cool. very common any everywhere. And so you know, there might be some listeners who have some background that they are still in touch with those postpartum care traditions. They'll be like, oh my gosh, that's what my grandma said, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so cool. Okay, so um, you, uh, you talk about what we've lost and what we've lost is like, it's the village, the village that cares for this postpartum mom. So how did we lose this village? Yeah, look, that's the million dollar question. And there's a few kind of ideas and theories, but there's not, a, it's not like an exact science. Um, most likely it kind of happened around the industrial revolution when, when young people had to start moving away from their extended that was a long families time ago. for work. Yeah. Yeah. Because before that we would have just lived in our same villages our whole lives you know we would have had our grandmothers we would have had our aunts and uncles we would have had our brothers and sisters and we all would have cared for the children um, together but then when we did have to start moving young people away to work in factories in cities and that sort of thing then when those young people started having babies they didn't have two things both the knowledge of this care like how to do it, and also the actual people to give them this care. Who's going to actually cook for this mum? Who's going to give her a massage? Who's going to support her with getting to know her her baby and how to breastfeed? Um, so those things kind of evaporated. And then because of colonisation, that sort of spread around the world as well. So it's probably more complex than that. But, you know, there's more to it than that. But that's kind of the quick story. Yeah. And then in the last century, we've had um, you know, as birth also moved into hospitals and became more medicalized and more, I don't know, industrialized, right? Then exactly. we, have, we weren't able to like do traditions surrounding the actual birth. And so then the pars- postpartum, I don't know. I, I mean, I just think in my family, we go back three generations before we go back to traditional birthing. Yes, definitely. It's been a long time. And a lot of women these days are, for example, the first to breastfeed in their family and that sort of thing. So, well, for, you know, that many in living memory. Um, so it takes a lot to kind of get these things back to normal because that's that's not normal. You know, the way that we're parenting now is not normal compared to the hundreds of thousands of years of, of human society prior and to that. We kind of um, celebrate the independent, strong resilient mom and we kind of think oh if you need help after your baby's born then you're somewhat weak or fragile minded yes exactly there's a there's a um a native american phrase and i i don't know exactly where this comes from that this idea that the colonizers have won when the hearts of the women are on the ground and i feel like that's sort of what's permeated us it's like when they've destroyed this concept of women's power, women's strength, you know, feminine leadership and knowledge, that's when they can take over a culture. That's when they can destroy us. Um, And and I feel like that's what's spread all over the world now. Wow. So then it stands to reason one of the most powerful things a woman can do is rebuild her village. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because 
you know, we for such a long time we've, I was just reading about this conference. Here's a, a good example. You know, they used to have those exhibitions where people from all over the world would gather and um, and bring like artifacts and, you know, yeah. architectural triumphs and all of that kind of thing. So one of them, I can't exactly remember when, it was maybe the 50s or so, um, but the theme was Man the Hunter. Um, and you can see how the patriarchy has rewritten history as though man the hunter was the most important and, you know, uh, successful aspect of humankind. As a response, there was a bunch of feminist literature after that called Woman the Gatherer um, because there's a huge amount of evidence that the way that humans are now and how successful we are as a species, perhaps too successful, um, is actually as a result of, of women um, and the way that we share the care of our children. So to go back a little bit, before all of this happened, we did used to share the care of our children. So we had um, aunts, uncles, grandparents, everyone, and, and in fact they're found in traditional hunter-gatherer communities. They These children would be cared for by between 8 and 14 adult carers every day on a daily basis. Um, and that, in fact, that is what allowed us to have such um, developed brains. And without that caring, without that allo parenting, um, we wouldn't be so intelligent. Wow. And uh, I, what you're saying reminds me of this thing I read, so I just Googled it. Um, the rate of um, death in an, in an infant is 1.8 times higher if the maternal grandmother was dead at the child's birth. And so what you're saying about uh, the the culture of motherhood and mothers helping each other, that also includes grandmothers, and they have definite <laughs> proof that um, that moms, that, that, that children are healthier, happier, live longer if their maternal or if their grandparents are involved, if the grandmothers are involved. Absolutely. Yes. So cool. And that's not, that's obviously not happening today. It's not possible for most families today. But just knowing that as a modern mom, realizing that this expectation that it's you alone with your children all day, that's not reasonable, you know. And so that can help us much better go, all right, well, maybe I need a cleaner, maybe I should do um, some cooking with friends and share some meals, maybe I should get to know the neighbours so I've got some extra childcare and, and just companionship, you know. But, you know, so it's obviously we're never going to go back to living the way that we lived, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, there's very few people who have that as a possibility. But knowing that this is not a job that was ever intended to be alone by one person can help us to go, all right, it's okay that I'm not coping with this. I'm actually not supposed to be able to do this. Yeah, that's a big thing to accept that this is not normal. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. So uh, what is the role then of a doula, a postpartum well, doula? Yeah, so Dana Raphael, who I mentioned earlier, when she did her research of, uh, of these all these different cultures who have this universal care, that's when she came up with the word doula. It was originally a um, Greek word, although those origins are a little bit dubious. Um, mm -hmm. But what she intended it to mean in its modern sense is actually breastfeeding support. Um, so when she actually coined that word, it wasn't what we think of as a doula today. And the reason that for this is she called herself a reflexive anthropologist, meaning that she was responding to the world from her own personal experience. So she couldn't breastfeed and she mm. thought this, this is not right. Like surely humans would not have survived um, and thrived all over the world if breastfeeding was really this hard 
what yeah. is in the culture that is wrong? You know, this can't be the norm. If breastfeeding was this hard, we would have died out a long time ago. <laughs> you know, we didn't have formula a few hundred years ago. So how did, how did this happen? So she looked into the cultural aspects um, and a sort of more social model of health and that's when she came up with this concept of a, of a doula. Well, she didn't invent it. She discovered that in all these different cultures, they have this role and we don't um, in the Western world. And so that was her intention was that a doula would be a breastfeeding support person, a postpartum support person. And then obviously because birth became so um, industrialised and and didn't have the evidence base that made it really the safest and best quality experience for mothers. They needed help with advocacy and that's why doulas stepped into the labour room. But in, originally that wasn't her intention. Interesting. Wow. Okay, so <laughs> I had somebody write me a note the other day and she said, you're putting too much emphasis on doulas and not postpartum doulas. We're important too. <laughs> so but what you're basically saying is it actually started as a postpartum doula and then they morphed into the the birth the birth scene exactly exactly <laughs> I'll, I'll have to let her know she'll feel vindicated yeah, yeah postpartum were the original doulas <laughs> that's awesome well and and postpartum doulas really take the place of the what used to be the mom and the grandma and the aunties right yeah that's right and so because we've lost a lot of that framework of care we don't have this this just general social knowledge of these care traditions and practices, then we we often rely on a professional who's actually made the effort to learn this. If we were lived in a culture that just organically provided this support, maybe we wouldn't need doulas, although a lot of those cultures still have doulas anyway, um, but maybe in addition to the family yeah, in addition. and community care. Yeah. So what does it take to become a trained postpartum doula? It's not a regulated industry, so it's. Um, I'm not aware of any country where there's actually any legal requirements. Anyone can call themselves a doula. Um, however, most people generally prefer to get some training. Um, I'm going to give you a slightly different example before we come back to our culture, but in I, I interviewed a Malaysian Chinese confinement lady and I asked her about qualifications, whether she needed to study to be a doula, and she laughed and thought that was the craziest thing in the world because she, for her in Malaysia, she said everyone knows how to care for mothers. Like that's just such a normal, common part of their culture. She said you don't need training in this. You just have to be a caring person you know and and love mums and love babies so for them they all know that mums need this nourishing comfort food they need to stay warm um you know for them that's really just inherent in their culture they all grow up knowing that she said it would be crazy for a woman not to have a confinement lady in her culture you would it would be insane you know um it's not even a question of if you have this care it's everyone has it. It's non-negotiable. So that just gives you a little bit of the cultural wow, context. Yeah, I was going to say that's not how we see our culture. No, exactly. So for us, we do need to do a little bit of, of training and study, usually because we've lost touch with these traditions um, in our own culture. You know, we all have them. I've looked a little bit into my European background and found some um, you know, Welsh traditions, some Czech traditions, some uh, English traditions, and and found that actually this, although it's harder to find in my culture, it still exists. Um, and so, but we just have to relearn it. So that's partly why I guess people want to do postpartum doula training today. 
Um, and then there's also because we're undoing a lot of the un evidence-based practices of the past so because a lot of the time we're up against some like cultural challenges for example that sabotage breastfeeding or um, unsafe sleep practices that grandparents might you know say oh well why don't you just do it like this or in my day we never used cars you know yeah so so for that reason a postpartum doula might want to kind of just get up to date on the evidence and um and some cultural care and that kind of thing so that she feels really confident, um, you know, going into a mum's home. Yeah. So um, can you make a living as a postpartum doula? Like is this supposed to be, is this a career or is this more of a volunteer community service? Yeah, I don't like to think of it as a volunteer community service. I know a lot of doulas do think of it that way and do practice it that way. But I think we really need to start valuing women's work. And if we really care about our society and our future, then I think caring for mothers is perhaps one of the most important things we could do. And that should be well resourced, well funded. So ideally, again, if we were looking at this in a kind of social model of health, this would be um, supported by the government. And there are some countries around the world that have fairly good postpartum care funding programs um, you know, so you can get home visits from midwives and doulas or lactation consultants and that sort of thing. And that definitely um, is a good start. But if you don't live in one of those cultures, then it is a little bit harder because you have to be paid privately by women. Yeah. And most of the time that is quite a large expense for that family. But I think what we really need to do is lead with this idea of a cultural shift, a yeah. cultural change. So I don't know the numbers for other countries, but in Australia, for example, it's, it's um, on average people spend $30,000 on a wedding, yet they would never consider even spending a few thousand dollars on postpartum care. Wow, we are long lost friends. That has been my soapbox <laughs> for 10 years. What is the deal? You know, exactly. like 18 months ago, she spent $5,000 on a, a gown. A and, dress. And yeah. nobody batted in an eye. And now she wants a postpartum doula for $600, $900. And everyone's like, Ugh. Yeah, exactly. So this says nothing about the value of our work. And it says everything about the culture that we're living in and the way that our culture treats women and values yeah. women. And people will put off getting married so they can save up. <laughs> yeah, you know, they yeah. want they want to have this big wedding. Of course, a lot of people put off having babies to save up too. But I mean, rather, how many onesies, how many baby clothes do you need? You don't mm-hmm. need that much. Newborns are really simple. <laughs> in fact, yeah, my newborns spent most of their time naked. <laughs> the ones that were born yeah, in summer. <laughs> that's exactly it. I would have rather had the postpartum care than all the cute outfits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they would, at the same time, they might upgrade their car or buy like a designer pram that costs two thousand dollars, you know. But still, a postpartum doula is too expensive. That, yeah, and that just only shows our patriarchal values. So I believe that as a, as doulas, we have quite a duty, an obligation to actually start um, increasing our cultural awareness of how important this time is. Um, and actually charging a decent amount of money so that, you know, because it's the same, you know, it's probably a little bit different there, but in Australia, people will generally choose the more expensive option, assuming it's better. So what that means is sometimes people end up with a private obstetrician, which is more expensive rather than a private continuity of care midwife, which is government funded, Um, you know, but they're not necessarily getting the best 
birth outcome. Um, so we need to kind of understand that a lot of the time people will choose the more expensive option when they perceive it as better. Um, and that's that's the change that needs to happen. We need to start showing people that, yes, this care is important. It's actually your birthright and um, we need to start demanding it and investing in it. Love it. Love it. Okay. So can you, we mentioned this at the beginning, but can you mention, can you talk about some specific traditions that other cultures um, use to care for their mothers, their new mo- newborn mothers? Yeah. Food's another one that's really common and, and easy to understand, but, but like they'll the have food- special f- postpartum meals. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. And that varies a lot depending on kind of the staple foods of that country. But the kind of the broad um, sort of way of understanding it is they're generally nourishing, soupy, comfort kind of foods. They'll be like things like um, soups and stews and puddings that are quite like rich and just make you feel really like mm. soothed and, and, you know, comforted. That's, that's yeah. the kind of feeling. So not a Wendy's Frosty because that's what I wanted after <laughs> You would definitely be allowed to have one but of them. But that's so cool that that they would have actual recipes that you kind of get to look forward to in your postpartum period. Yeah, exactly. So we teach a little bit of this in my postpartum training course, and there's quite a few different examples from around the world of, um, you know, I think in, in Korea they commonly have seaweed soup. Uh, in Jewish culture it's often chicken soup, you know. So there's there's like these kind of similarities. I interviewed some Indigenous um, Australians here. They said they would give kangaroo stew um so you know this kind of like warm anxious comfort foods is Mm. is the general thing so food and what else um so what have we covered warmth and food another one is that's really common is some kind of body work so there's all different kind of varieties again depending kind of on the culture but things like saunas and and steams um massage and even like hot hot rock kind of you know those warm stones that you do for treatments yeah um so again depending on kind of the cultural variations but this idea of having um this bringing the woman back into her body keeping her warm and that feeling of being contained um you know and supported which brings me to another common tradition which is belly binding which is also common in many parts of the world as well um just that the belly would be wrapped with you know whatever whatever the common fabric is in that country you Mm -hmm. know um then the belly would be wrapped and and kept warm and soothed and contained and this isn't to do with weight loss it's much more to do with um the feeling of being hugged again everything has this kind of um, one of my favorite words is um well in welsh tradition it's kutch and the word kutch means um it means something to do with like a house or a cubby but it also has these connotations of coziness and and comfort and warmth and so in in wales they use kutch shawls or kutch blankets and those are used for baby wearing and um to cover up breastfeeding and that sort of thing. So again, that idea of kutch, it's like a quite a good sort of um, broad concept for all of postpartum care. So um, why is it that warmth, I mean, I think I know the answer, but why is it that warmth and binding are such um, a key element on these, these, um, in these traditions? Yeah, well, it's obviously that's that emotional feeling, but there's the science as well a little bit that shows that. So, for example, um, here's like a 
you know, a lot of breastfeeding research is done on in cows because we care more about the dairy industry than we do about human mothers. Um, oh, wow. So, so here's an example, but they've done research that finds that when cows get a, you know, a massage, they walk them through this sort of car wash experience where they get like brushed <laughs> oh and, and washed. And then, and then they milk them and they, they have a quite a significant percentage more milk than well, they would I have Well, I mean, I guess if it works for cows, then. Well, exactly. And we don't have a lot of human lactation research. So unfortunately, a lot of the time we have to talk about cows. So intu- intuitively though, these, these cultures would have figured that out, that a mom who's kept warm and bound would then produce more milk and a healthier offspring. Because like you said, back in the day before formula, no no milky meant no baby. <laughs> exactly. Didn't survive. So exactly. they would have had to care for the mother for the safety of the infant. Exactly. And because they took much more a social responsibility for that family than we do. In our culture, it's kind of like your baby, your choice, your problem. Um, <gasps> whereas for them, it would be like a, a service, you know, like when a mother has a baby, it's kind of her gift to the community to raise a healthy, happy child. And in return, the community cares for that that family. Oh my gosh. Where can I move where that's a reality? That sounds amazing. <laughs> I believe that too. I always say it takes a village to raise a child. And, and I mean, that's a well-known quote, but I tell my kids, school teachers and anybody who has Im- any impact on my kids, I say, no, I, they need you. They need, you know, you don't have to parent my kid, you know, <laughs> that's reserved for me and, and their aunties, but and their grandmas, <laughs> but, but just like, yeah, all of the influence you give to my child, like, thank you for investing in my child. My kids have lemonade stands and the people that come up and have these conversations, like with my kids, like, thank you. Thank you for giving my children like their healthy perspective on the world. I love that. I love that, that the community rallies around these babies and it's, it's a gift to the community to raise a healthy child. Boom. Oh, that's going on a meme. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So you said, where can I go where this happens? A lot of the places in the world, this still does happen. I know, for example, in, in the Aboriginal community in Australia, there's a lot of Ah, uh, conflict with our welfare, child welfare, and and child, mm. you know, safety um, protection departments because they do share the care of their children. So, um, you know, they're much more likely to have aunties and uncles and grandparents who are caring for the children. Um, I've even talked to an Indigenous midwife who said that some of the babies that come to visit her, the children, you know, they might be like five years old, they actually wouldn't know which mother is their biological mother because to them it's unimportant. Um, They know that they're loved and cared for by all of these people and they're all considered to be a mother to this child. Wow. That blows my mind because all the people that saying saying that you can't bond with a foster child or messes, adoption messes up a baby or or um surrogacy isn't a good idea. That just that just goes in the face of all that that if a if if a health, a baby can be raised healthy and whole not even knowing their own biological mother because they're raised in a community that. Exactly. Wow. So I, I have some Indigenous friends who live here who frequently talk about their mum and I have to sometimes check which mum are you referring no, to. Oh, that's so cool. And they're adults, you know, they're my age, but that's so normal for them to have 
multiple mothers. There's also a lot of brain research that shows that our brain, so again, because we have this biological understanding of birth and, and the patriarchy has convinced women that, you know, I think it's a really successful strategy for keeping women in the kitchen, um, that women are the only ones who are biologically suited to caring when, in fact, the research doesn't show that at all because humans were designed for alloparenting to share the care with lots of people, including men and non-parents. Um, what happens is a lot of the brain changes that happen in mothers will happen during pregnancy and breastfeeding and that's and birth and that's really important but also a lot of the brain changes that happen in men and fathers and non-parents non-birthing parents um, they will happen through interaction with the child so what the research shows is that there are permanent brain changes in anybody who spends a decent amount of time caring and bonding for any baby those brain changes will be permanent wow and what are these like what are these chemicals? What are these hormones? How are these brains <laughs> changing? Are we flopping left and right hemispheres? What, what are the brain changes? Yeah, no, I love talking about all of this stuff. So we can go anywhere. I know, ready? Set, <laughs> <that> go. <laughs> um, so largely I tend to explain. So I use baby brain in a positive way. I think we need to reclaim this baby idea. Baby brain. That, yeah, that it's a good thing. So at the moment we use baby brain to think like, oh, I'm so dumb. I'm really forgetful. I, you know, I can't do anything anymore. Um, when in fact now. the research shows that that people who are parents have different brains and, in fact, there are a lot of benefits to those brains. So the easiest way to understand the changes, there's a lot of them, but they fit into two broad categories. One of them is learning and the other one is loving. So the learning changes are related to neuroplasticity, so the ability of our brains to rewire and adapt and change to new circumstances. So most people are aware, for example, that babies have high brain plasticity because because that's how they learn language so quickly. Um, and that kind of beds down around the age of three. Most people don't realise that when we become a mother, that neuroplasticity increases again um, to in order for us to learn all of the new skills um, for our new role that we didn't need in our previous life. So that's the learning. The loving is related to oxytocin and a whole range of love hormones um, that, that will... Um, mean that those changes will bond us to our baby, make us a better carer and focus us on that caring responsibility so that as our brain's rewiring, it's rewiring for that particular role. So that's kind of like the broad explanation of what baby brain actually is. So how much of baby brain is pre-birth and postpartum versus at the actual birth? Um, actually, a lot of the brain changes in mothers have happened before the birth. Um, so they've found that uh, a lot of the changes, yeah, but also related to breastfeeding and bonding, but it's not something that we've got a huge amount of data on. Um, a lot of people also ask me how long does it last, but again, the studies that I've seen will track the changes in mother's brains for two years and then they stopped studying but the changes were still happening um, at that point they hadn't finished yet so it, you know I think the changes are a fairly a long journey not not just like a blink and you'll miss it moment so um disruption and bonding after birth is that people like make a huge deal that if you mess that up you mess up the opportunity to bond properly with your baby are you saying that that's not so much a, an issue 
Yeah, I think we overestimate that in our culture. I think that's one moment in a very, very long multiple year bonding process. It's important, um, but it's definitely not the end of the line. See, the, our original attachment research was based on ducks. Have you heard that duck story? Uh-uh. It's quite common in the birthing world, but I think someone originally, some scientists, I'm not going to remember the details, but was watching ducks and when ducks hatched out of the egg, they bonded to the first um, carer that they saw, whether that was the mother duck or I think even a human researcher. I think that was Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I've, we've had ducks. They follow us. Yep. <laughs> they yeah. And, Anything and so, big that looks safe. <laughs> yes, exactly. You can't then extrapolate from a duck's brain to a human brain. We are no. far more complex social creatures. So the idea that a duck bo- blinks, uh, you know, blink and you'll miss it bonding, it's like lock on to that carer. That's mm. the one I'm going to follow. Humans are not like that. Our bonding process is much longer. It's much more complicated and it's designed by evolution to be with a wide range of adults, not just our biological parent. Well, then um, that that brings me to the next question. How do the brains of fathers um, and and all sorts of families, gay, adoptive, foster, non-birthing parents, you're saying their brains change as well? Yes, absolutely, through the act of caring. So the problem is if a father's not present or a non-birthing parent is not present in the baby's life on a daily basis, they won't experience the brain changes. So if a woman is pregnant and gives birth and, and for example, gives that baby for adoption or surrogacy or whatever, that woman will have experienced quite a large amount of brain changes already just through the process of being pregnant um, and giving birth. But a non-birthing parent obviously doesn't have that very small head start. They need to get involved Mm. hands-on with caring. Um, So that's the environmental influences for them are what will actually cause their brain changes. And there was a study that literally was published today called Parenthood Permanently Changes the Brain. Um, They found that parenthood causes lifelong changes to the brain structure in both mothers and fathers Um, And they're different changes. So, for example, mothers have thinner grey matter on the left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, Mm -hmm. which is to do with higher-order cognitive functions. So they're better at emotional regulation, memory, and problem-solving in the long run. So you do have a bit of memory decline in the short term, but in the long run it's better. Um, With non-fathers, the difference is the changes in their brain were different. So these, the fathers had thinner grey matter on the left, anterior, I don't even know that word, cingulate, and thicker grey matter in the right temporal pole. These regions are involved with social cognition, including emotional regulation and empathy. Wow. Yeah, so the changes might be different in different roles, and that's because humans are social creatures. We're designed to complement each other's skills you want to have have an auntie you're supposed to have a grandma you're supposed to have a a papa you're supposed to have a all these different roles and whoever's playing those roles will have those changes exactly because your brain plasticity increases and so then you can adapt and go right I'm good at this bit someone else is good at that bit this is the need of that child and someone else is going to adapt to that role so I'm wondering if that is um like if somebody if if grandpa or uncle or um, other type partner is playing the role of papa, then would they have those changes? Yeah, absolutely. 
Interesting. So we haven't done a huge amount of research on this, but the fact that it's not biological, the fact that these changes are environmental means Mm -hmm. that, yes, anyone could participate in caring for any baby and become bonded and experience permanent brain changes to adapt to that role. So how do we support, you say that it's not just a one moment that these changes happen. So how do we support these brain changes to like healthily occur and not have the mom or the the dad or the other non-birthing caretakers have this stress? Like (laughs) how do we support them so that they can properly bond? Well, you know, we have so much knowledge in the natural birth world of the way that we need to support birth, but then we often think it ends there and it doesn't. So the idea of keeping a mum in labour warm and, you know, dimmed lighting and soothing music and not lots of strangers and interruptions, all you need to do is extend that for another six weeks or eight weeks or so. Um, so it's very a very very similar biological needs during that postpartum time. It's just that we seem to think that birth is over and then yeah. everything goes back to normal, but it, it doesn't. So if um, if you don't bond properly then over this time period you're talking about, then does it mean that you're like less likely to, I, I don't know, I just hear so many people say, I didn't really bond with my baby and it affected this or that, or like, are there any pos- like lasting impacts of not being able to bond? Correct. No, it's not something we can talk of as black and white. I think we really try and oversimplify this idea. Like we missed out on those first four hours and therefore it's ruined forever. But it's not black and white. There are so many factors um, in bonding. And in fact, they found that in quite a lot of women, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, but I think it's something like one in five, they won't say that they felt that instant love and connection immediately with their baby. Uh, It's not related to mental health or trauma. It's simply that sometimes it's a bit like going on a blind date and it can take some time to get to know each other. So if you don't like your two-month-old yet... That's just okay. keep hanging out. Just keep, just hanging, keep out hanging out. And get to know <laughs> each other. Yeah. All right. Because sometimes, uh, especially after a traumatic birth, um, women have a hard time bonding with their babies. I think so. And that's where we really need to focus on boosting these oxytocin levels, not just during birth, you know, because originally it was oxytocin was discovered and named quick birth because it increases contractions. But what we've learned is that it's not just for birth. It's actually the bonding hormone. It's the love hormone. Everyone has it. Children have it. Men have it. You know, elderly people who are past their reproductive years have oxytocin. Um, And so what we need to do is really embrace that oxytocin. And that's why things like massage and comforting food and beautiful music and nice smells and just feeling safe and supported can really increase, uh, you know, this ability to just really be relaxed get enough sleep, get enough nutrition and be able to just gaze into your baby's eyes and say, hey, we don't know each other yet. Let's let's spend some time together and, and relax yeah. together. And stop being so frenzied about all of the things all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which is why it needs, it requires community care. It's not a, it's not a thing you can do on your own. A few women have really beautiful and lucky experiences you know that they have a really soothing birth and then perhaps they um you know are quite confident and happy on their own I would say that's definitely not the norm I'd say that most super minority right there yeah yeah most women the vast majority of women will have interruptions 
to their birthing experience, for example, difficult visitors, not enough good quality food, not enough sleep, you know, and all of these things actually require someone else to come in and say, I'll drop off some food, I'll clean up the house, I'll take your older kids out for a play. Um, you know, all of those things uh, can't be done alone by the mother. But you're saying that basically if a mom, because a, a lot of people will say the way you fix you fix or you prevent trauma is by getting a lot of education and just getting all the information about all the stuffs. But that's not always the best idea. You're saying that just... Yeah, it's a, it's a real balance. And I think it's a matter of understanding that there's different roles in this experience. It can really help, for example, to have a birth doula who can give you the right information at the right time and provide you with the evidence-based information rather than you just having to go to Google or Facebook. Um, so often it's good to outsource some of that too, like find someone you trust and say, you know, hey, can you just help me find what I need to know when I need to know it, but stay off that whole like Google is God. Yeah. <laughs> it has all of the answers and I must know everything. Like we yeah. can go too far. However, we don't want to over rely on intuition because that can also lead us to, you know, making bad choices or not getting the best possible care. Well, yeah. How do you tell the difference between intuition and um, hormonal roller coasters? Intuition is, um, it's actually been studied and it's quite a scientific concept, but most people in the wellness world don't use it in that way. So what intuition actually means is um, a way of learning so many things that it, you can recall that information because you've had a lot of experience. You can recall that information very quickly without conscious thought. So I'll oh. give you a few examples. Yeah, that is not what people usually define it as. No, no. So you actually can't be born with mother's intuition. You, it doesn't, you can't just wake up the day after having a baby and go, that's it. My mother's intuition is now switched on that's not intuition maybe it's instinct um, or some of the brain changes but intuition is actually a learned process that requires a vast repertoire of experience so for example when you drive your car to somewhere where you go every day to work or your kids school or to the shops where you always go you can often most people can can relate to this often you drive home and you get to your own house and then you think back and you're like I can't remember any of that drive. Was I even driving safely? Did I stop at the stop sign? Did I indicate? Like you don't have a conscious memory because you did it on autopilot. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> yeah. And that's because you've done that drive so many times before. So that's not the same as when you drive somewhere new that you've never been, particularly if it's like another country where you have to drive on the other side of the road or the rules are different, the speed limits are different. Then it requires a huge amount of conscious thought um, mm -hmm. and a huge amount of cognition. Um, so you're going to have to think hard about that and remember that. But intuition is when you've done something so many times that it's instant and you don't need to think about it. Wow. So what happens with your baby is the first time you hold your baby, they might like wriggle their shoulders in a way and you're like, oh, you don't like that. I'm going to hold you in a different way. And over time, um, build it, you build up this vast repertoire of, of experience with your unique baby that no one else knows. So then, but you get to the point where you're like that, that cry, I can understand that expression. I can understand. I know what this um, baby needs right now. And it's not magic. It's simply that you've had so much experience with that baby and no one else in the world could possibly have as much knowledge of that baby as you do. Yeah. So 
can make these decisions really quickly and, um, you know, intuitively without needing to use your con- cognitive brain. Wow. So intuition is almost like sister with wisdom. So in, as far as like learning all the things before birth and all the things about parenting, it's, it's allowing yourself to learn these things, but not getting stuck in the frenzy of all the information, but let them become part of you. And then when something feels off, all of that information is be- because, it, because you own it, now it becomes intuition. Exactly. So that's why mums can often take their baby to the doctor and go, look, it's just not right. I can't put my finger on what it is, but I know this baby's not right. And and that's because the mum can pick up on very minute details like facial expressions, body language, the mm-hmm. sound of a cry that they don't even have to cognitively think about anymore. Um, they just know intuitively this is not how my baby normally sounds. Wow. Doctor, you need to take this seriously. That is a kind of an earth shattering concept. I love that. That's my new, that's my new favorite. That intuition, intuition isn't just a, oh yeah, all, everything that you just said. It's amazing. Okay. So as we learn about other cultures and as we rebuild our own village, how do we take things from other cultures or even our um, sister cultures and do it without a cultural appropriation? Yeah, this is a really, really important question. I'm glad you asked. I think the most important thing is to realise that if we looked into our own cultures, we have this own caring, even as a, you know, a white Western European woman. Um, this, you know, like, for example, I have some Welsh background, so I talked about the word kutch. Um, I didn't know that, you know, it's not like my grandma taught me this stuff. We don't have this oral lineage anymore. Um, I had to really go and and dig and search and find people who can teach me these things. And what that's meant is I feel less of a need to take from other cultures because I feel more connected and grounded in my own. So I feel like that's one of the most powerful things we can do to overcome cultural appropriation rather than romanticising other people's culture, idealising other people's culture, realising that we have culture ourselves, even if we have lost touch with it. You have to dig dig deeper. Mm. Yeah. And if we do want to borrow from other people's culture to make sure we're doing it in a way that is respected, that's acknowledged, that's paid, um, you know, but and, and with permission, I think that's just keeping that in mind is always important. Yeah, I know, like, for example, um, the word blessing way came out about 10 years ago in, in my circle, and everybody was doing blessing ways, and they were doing all these ceremonies. And then <laughs> a, few, a few years into it, everyone's like, no, no, stop, stop calling them blessing ways. We have no right to call them blessing ways. And these traditions that we're taking, they they don't belong to us. They belong to the Native American culture. And and we're just really being disrespectful. And I remember thinking, like, that was my first experience with cultural appropriation. It didn't even dawn on me that that was, that was a thing. But as I've learned about that postpartum, especially one of my best friends is Mexican, and she's taught me a lot about the quarantina and all of those cultures. Like, I just feel so, so, so much respect to those, to those um, rituals. And if I were to want to experience them, like I would want to go to, like, would I want want somebody from that culture to the, do these rituals to me, on me, with me, and like almost like share them with me, like a sweet gift, and not 
like just demand, <laughs> you know, <laughs> come do this to me. Come and um, well, like belly binding. What's the history of belly binding? Is that that's pretty well known, common? Is that like cultural, culturally appropriated? <laughs> no, because every culture does it. So you just need to find your own cultural way mm. of doing it. So when I interviewed my um, my English midwife to learn more about the Northern English traditions. Um, and she told me that they would just tear up old bed sheets in the hospitals and use them for wrapping. So, you know, that's not something that you don't have to use a rebozo or you don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to use the word or the, the way from another culture. You can find that within your own because they all oh have it. Okay, so you're basically saying you can't steal from another culture. You just have to take the concept that they're accomplishing and find out how your culture accomplished it and do that. And you're not, oh, that's so freeing. So everybody has soups and worms foods and everybody has binding and everybody has a rest period and everybody has like blessings on the babies and everybody has all these different things. We yeah, you've shower. just got to find, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you've just got to find your own. Got so it. another tradition I learned of from my background was in the Catholic church, they have a ceremony called churching. So instead of having, you know, instead of calling it a mother blessing or they call it a blessing way, that, which is inappropriate, but the churching is the the Catholic tradition. Um, you know, so you just find that from your background. Oh, that's so freeing because we kind of uh, look at other cultures. Like you said, romanticizing these other cultures. You don't have to do that. You just look to your own history. Take exactly. Yeah, because so many people say to me, but my grandma's dead or they don't talk about that stuff. And um, you just have to keep digging. You know, I believe that we're connected through generations stronger than we, we give credit and the fact that you go back to your genetic heritage to find the culture, the cultural practices, that would, that's so honorable. I don't know what the word would be, but that just gives me warm fuzzies. Definitely. And isn't it so respectful to our ancestors? Like to think my grandmother's grandmother would have done this stuff, you know, yeah, they would have done this. And it brings us closeness to them. Yeah, how beautiful to revive that lineage instead of taking it from someone else. Oh, I love that. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Mind blown. I mean, I always knew that culture cultural appropriation was bad. No, 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 naughty, 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 but but to make that connection that they're just go within your culture. Oh, that's so good. Wow. So, where can people learn more about you? Read all your things, do all of the things. <laughs> Um, it's very easy just google newborn mothers and you can find my website I've got courses for professionals I've got books um, for mums and there's also loads of free stuff for podcasts what what kind of what kind of courses do you have for professionals Uh, so I teach postpartum uh, doulas so if people want to learn to be a doula particularly we we teach you know baby brain and traditional cultural care um, and all of this kind of stuff and um, we also have a breastfeeding course uh, as well coming out soon. So for doulas or other people who work with mums who want to have a better understanding of both evidence-based breastfeeding but also this idea of cultural community care um, as a really important factor in breastfeeding success, that's what that course is all about. Wow, that's really cool. Okay, so it's super easy, newbornmothers.com. That's it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Seriously, mind blown. Oh, my goodness.
I cannot wait to like tell my friends tomorrow. Oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe what podcast I did on the podcast last night. That's so great. Um, so if you have any questions for Julia, again, you can reach her at newbornmothers.com. Are you on Facebook, Instagram? Yes. Yeah. All the, all the things. Okay. And if, or you can reach out to me at media at birthcircle.com. Thanks again, Julia. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been great. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.